from 19th century England's cruelest and most notorious prison, stuffed in wartime with hopeless American sailors, comes death, riot, and a history-making production of Romeo and Juliet. Well, of course it does. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In a novel just out in the U.S., Simon Mayo, a longtime BBC radio host, tells an unlikely story that historians say is very likely true, that England's first all-black production of Romeo and Juliet was staged by sailors, most of them American, in a prison called Dartmoor during the War of 1812. The novel, titled Mad Blood Stirring, is bleak like its setting, but it also contains flashes of friendship and a love of art that emerges out of the gospel music performances and Shakespeare plays staged under the order of a larger-than-life, but also real, African-American prisoner of war called King Dick, who ran Block 4, the prison's segregated block. Simon Mayo tells us more about the book and its history in this podcast, which we call To Prison Eyes, Ne'er Look on Liberty. Simon Mayo is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, Simon, when I started your book, I realized that I hadn't known that Americans were held prisoner on British soil during the War of 1812. I mean, honestly, I didn't know or remember much about the War of 1812 at all. But I thought that if American sailors were captured, they were just put to work on British ships. They were pressed into Mm -hmm. service. So is this just common knowledge in Britain? Uh, because you're better educated than we are? (laughs) (laughs) No, No, there is no common knowledge about the War of 1812 in the UK. None at all. In fact, you know, we don't, we kind of don't really know that the war existed. For In the UK, it was sort of part of the war against Napoleon. It was a trade war. You know, it was all a little bit messy. And then the peace treaty, when it was all over, didn't change anything. Uh, and in the US, the perception was different because you just won the Battle of New Orleans, which, which actually was fought after the peace treaty had been signed, but the news hadn't arrived there. So that the impression was, we've just beaten the British. Oh, look, peace treaty. So it felt as though <laughs> America had won. Well, I'm relieved to hear that because it's all a bit hazy. But what what was the deal then? Prisoners were given their choice? Either work for us, fight against your own country, or you're going to be held prisoner in Britain. Yes, that is precisely the choice. And the British had been using impressment in the UK. They were That's how they staffed the ships in the first place. But they had been, for a period of many years, they had been taking sailors off other ships. And if I remember right, the first item on Madison's declaration of war in 1812 was the British use of impressment. And because so many of the battles were at sea, that's why it was American sailors who were taken, and indeed British sailors taken uh, to America. But the American prisoners, the the most unlucky ones, ended up in Dartmoor Prison, which is uh, where we start our story. They don't all end up there, but 7,000 American sailors were incarcerated in the worst prison that Britain had to offer in 1813 and 1814. And you describe it in the book. Why don't you read that passage for us so we can picture something? Okay. So we are arriving at Dartmoor Prison. This is very, very early in the story. And we're arriving with one of our main characters from the book, who's a white American sailor who's 16 years old. And his name is Joe Hill. 
and he's arriving with what few compatriots he has left from his ship, which is called the Eagle, and they're being marched to the prison. The fog rolled away, blown by some unfelt zephyr. They had been climbing since first light, but this was no vantage point, just an endless, rotting brown wasteland, a panorama as bereft and cheerless as a desert. Joe fought against the chills. If it wasn't for the hallelujah in our hearts, Mr Roach, he observed, we might conclude this is the arse end of England. We might indeed, said Roach, and looks like we're about to climb right into it. Up ahead, the redcoats conferred, then steered their prisoners from the track towards a steep escarpment. As Joe scrambled past, two of them smirked at him. Hope you're not going to stop singing now, said the purple-faced one. Not now you're so nearly home. They laughed, and then the purple one coughed and spat. The path they indicated was wider and less marshy, but the gradient was a tough one, and the English knew it. What was wrong with the other track? asked Joe. "'Views better this way,' said the purple soldier. "'Proper scenic it is,' sneered his colleague. "'Quite something, top of this here hill. "'All the prisoners say so.' "'The sailor's exhaustion was now bone deep. "'Painful, blooded feet began to slip from underneath tired bodies "'as they climbed, weary hands reaching out for balance. "'Leaden legs cramped, then gave up altogether. "'Joe put both hands on the sodden, muddy hips "'of the barrel-shaped man in front of him and pushed.' The summit was marked by a solitary, skeletal pine tree and a militiaman sitting beneath stood to greet them, his arms open wide. Welcome to Dartmoor, he beamed. Why don't we rest your rotten Yankee bones here for two minutes, just so you can take it all in, like. Joe clambered his way over the top, pushing Goff, then pulling Roach as he went. Around him, the cursing told him everything he needed to know. This wasn't the casual profanity that was part of a sailor's life. This was fearful, terrified blasphemy. Sweet baby Jesus, would you look at that? Christ alive. Across the fields, another half mile of gorse and stones, a great prison city had been carved from the moor. A huge encampment of enormous grey hulks, vast granite buildings with pointed roofs, shunted hard together, seemed to grow from the earth. There were turrets, chimneys, fences, and surrounding the whole, two formidable encircling walls. All of it was grey, a deathly, exhausted, pain-filled grey. An unearthly silence seemed to spread across the fields, reaching out from the prison to envelop the sailors. What in God's name, muttered Joe, dread settling deep in his stomach. It's a ghost town, a ghost town. And we're the ghosts said Roach. Oh, okay, I don't this... want to make people think this is a grim book, you know, because this is, this is quite a cheerful book in places. <laughs> it's a, it's but a that... playful romp. <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, it is in places. Well, it doesn't sound like a picnic. Uh, you've been there. Well, what's it, well, yeah, was no, it I'm, like uh, then, and, and how bad is it oh, still? It's still horrendous. It's still a working prison, and it's... Uh, Dartmoor is a very wild and desolate place. That's why it was it was built there. And I think it was kind of built to terrify people. And it does exactly that. It, re- it looks as though it hasn't changed in 200 years. I mean, you know inside now that the conditions are a lot better. And I spoke to some of the inmates who had actually read the book um, as well, which was quite a, an unusual experience. But yes, so the conditions inside now are fine and conform to all the rules and regulations which you'd expect. But back in 1813, 1814, when these guys arrived, it was a hellhole. 
And terribly overcrowded, more than a thousand prisoners in there? Yes, so there were seven prison blocks arranged in a half circle. And each block, which we were just describing there, had three floors. And each one, at the time of the story, holds a thousand prisoners. It was kind of made to hold about 300. Each block was made to hold about three or 400, but is now holding uh, a thousand. Originally, it was built for the prisoners of the war against Napoleon. And then as the French left, the Americans uh, filled the place up. So yes, so at the start of the story, there are 7,000 American sailors in the seven different blocks, a thousand, 500 on the first floor, 500 on the second floor. And then the top floor is called the Cockloft where there was trading and there was gambling and theatrical performances. Let's talk about this racial separation because that's such an important component of of the story. The prisoners were segregated by race. There was one block for non-whites and all the others were for the white prisoners. Is this historically factual? And, And if so, how did the segregation come about? This, I mean, this was really how I got to write the story in the first place because I'd been researching uh, a prison in the southwest of England just for my previous uh, novel. And I sort of stumbled on this fact that in 1814, at the request of white American sailors, they went to the British agent, who was the, which is the name given to the governor, and they said that they wanted to be separated, they wanted to be segregated from their comrades in arms. And the British agent agreed. And so Prison 4 became basically the non-white block because there are prisoners there from India as well. So, But the segregation was at the request of the white sailors. And I, I time and again came back to the central fact because it seemed to me astonishing. They had been fighting on the same side. And the first thing that they do when they get onto English soil is they want to be separated. And... It's that act of violence at the start of the book which is sort of sets everything else up and running. And when you read that, is that what made you want to write a novel about this? Yeah, I think so, because it just felt like a part of British history that I didn't know anything about. It's the only time in British history that there's been racial segregation in a prison. And I thought, well, why don't I know that? And when I went to the museum in Dartmoor, I asked the guy who runs it, who was an expert in the prison, I asked him about the segregation, and he didn't know anything about it either. So it just seems to me as though this has been a story waiting to be told, that it's an incredible story. It it produces the first, not to get ahead of ourselves, but you know, it produces the first black Shakespeare in the United Kingdom, as in terms of Shakespeare production. It's the first time that black gospel music is heard in the United Kingdom. As I mentioned, the only time there's been a racially segregated prison. And and nobody knows about this. Nobody knows about this story. So I thought, well, I'm not going to wait for someone else to tell the story. I'm I'm going to tell it. And, 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 that's, and that's what we're talking about. Well, it is wild. And let's get to the Shakespeare part of the story. You said something interesting at some point I read that you, you said, oh, I was looking into this and I, I discovered the story. And here this uh, segregated group, uh, they put on Othello. Mm-hmm. And I might have stopped there, but then they put on Romeo and Juliet. And that's what really got me interested. Yes. It sounded like no, you no, wouldn't that... have written the book if they had just done Othello. I mean, I, I probably would have. It, it might have been a different book because it was the denouement of reading that it was Romeo and Juliet that was the second production that made me think, OK, this is a gift. This has fallen in your lap. If you turn this down, you're an idiot. And 
Um, so I decided not to be an idiot. But I, I just think there, there's something about, obviously there's something about the drama of Romeo and Juliet and the two houses and the warring families that if you were in a segregated prison, it, it, was, just an obvi- it was just an obvious story to do. Plus, Romeo and Juliet has a bright, positive uh, opening half, really, and it's quite possible that there would be a happy ending. It's only at the beginning of Act 3... Uh, of the killing of Mercutio, that it all kind of spirals out of control. And so that was the pattern that I followed. And I think it was, it, it just felt like a gift. I don't think Othello would have lent itself as easily to uh, what I wanted to do in this novel. And because Romeo and Juliet is told in five acts, I've told it in five acts. And it's not a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but there are some echoes of Romeo and Juliet that happen and some of the characters represent some of the characters in uh, in Romeo and Juliet. It just felt like the right, it just sort of fell on me and I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll go with this. I can see that because it, it, it's kind of a mind-blowing that men would put on Romeo and Juliet in, in prison under these circumstances. And mm. how did that come about? In the book, one of the characters says that the idea to put it on came to the black prisoner's ringleader, King Dick, and we'll talk about him in a moment, and it came to him when they were locked up with these uh, French sailors, as you said, from left over from the Napoleonic Wars. So originally, it must have represented separate nationalities. Yes, so there is very little that is known about the facts of this, other than Romeo and Juliet was performed in Block 4 in 1814. I've cheated a bit by shifting it into early 1815 for the purposes of the story. We also know that the French had a theatre company and they put on plays when they were in prison for and that the American sailors kind of inherited a lot of their sets and the American prisoners had two theatre companies. So for the purposes of clarity, I've just reduced it to one theatre company. So we know that these theatre companies existed. We know that Othello and Romeo and Juliet were chosen and were put on and performed uh, and it cost um, sixpence to sit at the front and threepence to sit at the back. You mean that, people who came from outside of the prison had to pay? No, no, I think it was. I think they were inviting other prisoners to come in. Oh. There's a lot of money swilling around. Um, because these are prisoners of war, they get paid a salary by the American government. So the, so the money comes in and the money is spent in the market. Uh, there are also winnings which the sailors uh, have from uh, boats that they've captured. So there's a lot of money that's swilling around and uh, so there's an incredible amount of gambling. So asking money for a theatrical production might sound a weird thing to do in prison, but because they were prisoners of war, they had cash and so they spent it. And they had scripts? They had a library? Yes, there was... Despite uh, this I mean, being uh, the ass end of England? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> there was, uh, I think it's in Block 7, one of the sailors had spent uh, winnings on a library. Uh, and this is all true. And I use that library as the probable source of the scripts that they use for this production. Well, it's also true there was this uh, King Dick character. Uh, he just sounds like something else. He knows his Shakespeare very well, down cold. He quotes yeah. Hobbes. He's just intellectually and physically larger than life. Uh, who was this guy? Uh, King Dick's real name is Richard Crafus. Uh, we know absolutely nothing about him until he arrives in Dartmoor Prison, having been caught by the British off the French coast. He very quickly takes over Prison 4. Uh, he is six foot. F- he's either six. He's either six foot five, six foot seven, or seven foot, depending on whose account you want to 
or nine I foot mean, ten. Oh, nine <laughs> foot ten. I mean, and this is a this is an era where the average height of the sailor was about five foot two, five foot three. So this man is a giant. He also wears a bearskin hat on his head, and he carries a club in his hands at all times. Uh, he runs the gambling. He basically has his finger in all the pies in the prison, and he is obviously a fearful character. And but here's the thing: he is clearly a Shakespeare scholar, and it's his production, his idea to put on Othello, and it's his idea to put on Romeo and Juliet. So the challenge for this book was to try and make him not a cartoon character, because it would be if I had just invented the six foot seven guy with a club and a bearskin hat and a love of Shakespeare. I think you might be thinking, really? Uh, yeah, that would have been you, very uh, convenient. Yes, exactly. But he is this astonishing man. And I really f I felt the pressure to try and make him a believable character. I'm sitting here in a studio. I'm a white Londoner. And I was trying to make King Dick the centre of this story because I wanted him to dominate this the way he dominated Prison 4. So I sweated long and hard to try and make him a character that you would cheer for but you would be afraid of. And you also feel for him. He, he kind of becomes this King Lear figure by the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because he is so broken up about the the strife, the, the violence. Yes, uh, that's right. He he does essentially become Lear at the end because, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler, but it is in the history books. Um, the story of the Americans in Dartmoor kind of finishes with the Dartmoor Massacre in April 1815. This is, as I see it, this is, Dick has done his level best to keep the lid on this boiling pot of a... Uh, of a prison and he has fought long and hard to try and keep everything together but when there is as the british see it this escape attempt and the troops the british troops open fire that's kind of you know that's kind of the end of it but he he's an he's just an interesting character i mean i i saw him as i guess a tribal leader and an equal with the prison agent so we have some scenes in the book where they speak on equal terms just to give an insight into the kind of man that Dick was and the kind of thinking and the kind of process uh, that he was going through. Well, a tentpole of, of this plot, and there's a lot going on in your book, is that Romeo is black and Juliet is a white sailor. And, yeah. and this was a huge revolutionary abomination for these sailors locked up at Dartmoor in the book. They didn't blink, it sounds like, at two men kissing each other, but God forbid it be interracial. Yeah. So how did no, that storyline evolve for you as as you were writing and working with this material? So I, I made a decision very early on to run the production of Romeo and Juliet into the massacre. Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy, so I'd put the two together. And uh, I don't think there would have been an eyebrow raised at all about a man playing Juliet. The first... Juliet in the first ever production of Romeo and Juliet was a man called Robert Goff. But yes, the fact that Joe Hill is white and Habakkuk Snow is black, it becomes a real moment. And it was the first thing they rehearsed, the first scene. Yeah, they rehearsed. yeah, that, yeah mm. that's right. That's right. Um, and it and it becomes a very, very big deal indeed. And in fact, the agent says he, you know, you, you, you scrap the kiss or you scrap the play. But it's also a dramatic moment, I think, because uh, Joe and Habs have to rehearse the kiss. 
And when they do it, Joe discovers that actually um, he quite enjoyed it. So I don't want to give too much away, but they are, they are the Romeo and Juliet of the play and they are the Romeo and Juliet in my story as well. Well, there is an interesting twist when King Dick says that Shakespeare was black. He's arguing with this white character, Joe, and, and, mm. and, and King Dick's men agree. So what did you want to, King Dick to mean by that? A few years ago, I was very fortunate to interview Maya Angelou and... In the course of that conversation, she said... When I came to one, well, a number of sonnets, I thought, that must, it's got to be a black girl who wrote that. It was something about the way he wrote uh, in one of his sonnets. When in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, I all alone bemoan my outcast state and travel a deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate. See, that's a black girl. <laughs> it was a very powerful moment, I thought. Uh, so I was thinking, well, if Maya Angelou thought that growing up as a kid in the 20th century, how much more likely is it that King Dick might have thought the same thing. So, he yes, he is absolutely, to Joe's bafflement, King Dick declares that Shakespeare was black. And Joe is advised to just go along, <laughs> as you probably would, <laughs> as he's a very, very tall guy. But I, I thought it made King Dick's ownership of the play and ownership of Shakespeare that much more believable and understandable if he thought that Shakespeare was black. So I, I, I took my, if this doesn't sound too boastful, I took my lead from Maya Angelou and I thought if she can believe it, then maybe we can when we read about it of King Dick. That's interesting that you, you tell that story because I was trying to put myself in your position as a, uh, as a British white man writing a book uh, dealing with race and Americans. What you would go to 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 inform yourself mm. did a conflict come up for you personally what you mean apart from on every page <laughs> from the beginning to the very end you mean, suppose, a, you mean yes. apart from that yeah apart from that i came to the conclusion that if i sat down and worried about it too much i would never write a single word mm. so that what i decided i just attacked each scene as i would any other story and i gave it my best shot so i did an awful lot of reading i did a lot of research and what you have in Mad Bloodstone is the best that I can do. And I'm hoping that people will go, okay, yeah, I can, I can see that. And I, and I love the ride that we go on. And uh, who knew that about Romeo and Juliet? But I think I have been as faithful as I can to the drama that was happening in the prison in 1814. Um, I have injected more racial tension in the story than there is documentary evidence to suggest. But that is because most of the documentary evidence that we read comes from the best-selling memoirs which were written by the white sailors after the War of 1812 when they, when they got home. But was I aware that I was detached from the, the life story of these people? Sure, yes, absolutely. In my, in my last book, the lead character is a 16-year-old girl. So, uh, you know, that I th 
with respect, I think that's what authors have to do. Well, switching gears for a moment, you, you talked about taking artistic license and, and that Romeo and Juliet inspired the structure of your novel, that you have five acts. And you also switch back and forth from novelistic writing to scenes written as if they were a play. What hmm. was the idea there? <laughs> that was that I thought that was I mean I was I was really happy to to do it and I enjoyed I enjoyed writing them I thought that was the kind of when I when I handed it into the editor I thought that it might come back you know like a piece of homework that you get back from your teacher at school with a red line through it you know see me uh, <laughs> let's let's think of that but actually everyone has has liked it as much as me so the general idea i should put this in some kind of context so yes so, so each act each of the five acts ends with a, a, a dramatic piece of dialogue specifically the reason i did it is when i was getting towards the end of act one i had taken on holiday with me the new harry potter play harry potter and the cursed child and it was reading a play at the same time that made me think i would like to hear dick's voice and thomas shortland's voice speaking together when I'm halfway through the book, I get a call from a woman called Tessa Ross, who's the film producer who's bought the film rights uh, for Mad Blood Stirring, and she said, "Well, we've we've got a we've got someone to write the screenplay." And I thought, well, "That's that's fantastic. Who is it?" And she said, "It's Jack Thorne. He's the guy who's written the Harry Potter play." So, wait a um, second. I was going to ask was... you whether you contacted <laughs> them because you were right reading no, the play. It no, was totally no, out of the no, blue. It was. It was completely out of the blue. So when I got to meet Jack sometime later, I said, you have to know your influence in this book is, even though you've only just written the screenplay, the, 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 the manuscript that you have just read has your influence because those dramatic scenes at the end of each uh, act, they're only there because I've just read Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Well, what's the status of the, of the script and are you involved in it? <laughs> no, I'm not. If Jack's writing it, I'm quite happy to let him um, do that. Uh, so the status of this is, from the outside, the film world is in tortuously slow. I'm a radio man. I think, of the, you know, you do one show, you move on to the next, uh, and it's all over and done with very quickly. However, um, the film business doesn't work like that. And the last time I checked, they are. I think they've found a, a director, and they're going to be working uh, with him. Um, but, you know, there are a thousand reasons why these things fall apart. So I'm not uh, – all I'm responsible for, Barbara, is this book that we're talking about. And if, if it becomes anything else, then, then I'm very excited. But if it doesn't, then I'm very happy with the book. Well, one more question, the Shakespeare one. Yeah. Working on the book and, and thinking about the role that Shakespeare was playing, or at least – acting in, in Shakespeare's plays for these prisoners who are just on tenterhooks. The, the war has been, the rumors that the war is over, or it appears to be that the war is over, but they're still prisoners. There's so much tension. There's so much going on in this prison, and they throw themselves into, into Shakespeare. I wondered if you discovered anything for yourself about Shakespeare or Romeo and Juliet that, you, that hadn't occurred to you before. That's a very good question, by which I mean I hadn't thought of an answer before you'd asked it. Um, I, I would say that I had never read Romeo and Juliet all the way through without a break ever. So more than anything else, what I took away from it is, I mean, this is going to sound like a cliche, but I couldn't help but think that if Richard Crafus, a.k.a. King Dick, 
was impressed with the words of Shakespeare and wanted to own the words of Shakespeare and chose Romeo and Juliet for his men in prison for in Dartmoor, that it has a timeless quality. I told it, said it was going to be a cliche, but that there was something about the streets of Verona that he wrote, that Shakespeare wrote about, which switches very easily and nimbly into the chaotic streets of Dartmoor prison, which is why there have been so many adaptations. But there was something about the genius of the, the characters and the two tribes that Shakespeare wrote about, which fits perfectly into the experience of the sailors in 1814 and to our experience of life now in 2019. So I'm restating something that your listeners will be very familiar with, but as someone who hadn't read Romeo and Juliet for himself, um, which I did in one sitting, uh, I think that was what came over to me most powerfully. There was something about his prose, something about his characters, something about the lines, something about the drama that he that he puts on for us, which still works now as it has done for hundreds of years and you know and if it works in the most appalling of conditions and it's hard to think of production of Romeo and Juliet that would have been produced in worse conditions than the one in Dartmoor prison in 1814 then if it can work there then I think it obviously still has a power for for everybody now. Well Simon this has been delightful talking with you I really appreciate it. Uh, Barbara I appreciate your time thank you very much indeed I've loved it. Simon Mayo is a longtime BBC radio personality who currently co-hosts the popular film review show on BBC Radio 5 Live. His new novel is titled Mad Blood Stirring. The American edition was published by Pegasus Books in 2019. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. To Prison Eyes, Ne'er Look on Liberty was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Sharon Bowe and John Hemingway at the BBC in London. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. And if you are, we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with one of our first folios, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.